is going on around here? The Outline, World Dispatch. Tuesday, May 16th, 2017. I'm Sam Thonis. Today on The Dispatch, Adrian Jeffries on a doxed hacker. They doxed him, they found his information, they published his real name online. Roland Bishop on audience participation. TV has become an augmented reality game. And Christopher Glazik on why Trump will probably be impeached. I think it might be wishful thinking to think that they'll be able to avoid impeachment. Here's the dispatch. The future. Last week, a debilitating computer virus spread across networks at hospitals, banks, and other organizations all around the world until it was stopped by a young security researcher working out of his bedroom. Adrian Jeffries has been following the hack. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sam. So as we covered on the show yesterday, um, you've been following this giant hack uh, that's now known as WannaCry. Yeah, it's called WannaCry or WannaCrypt. This is the malware or ransomware that spread to hospitals and other organizations all around the world and locked down computers and demanded payment in Bitcoin in order to uh, give people access to their files back. And so there's uh, another hacker who stopped this attack? Yeah, so this 22-year-old security researcher in England was one of several people who kind of looked at this ransomware as it was spreading and basically like volunteered their time to dissect what was going on. And he figured out um, that if he registered a certain domain and the ransomware attempted to attack, attack that domain, that it would shut the worm down. For now, it's basically been contained. And, uh, and this 22-year-old who he said he was on vacation at the time is basically responsible for saving probably hundreds of thousands of computers from being infected. So how do you know that he's 22? So he has been speaking to reporters. At first he was speaking to them pseudonymously. But then? But then. So the UK tabloid press is very celebrity-oriented, and so they looked at his online footprint and figured out what his name was and treated him, you know, with treated him like a a celebrity and and basically in that the public interest outweighed his own interest in privacy. All right. So these papers, they basically doxed him. They doxed him, they found his information, they published his real name online. However, it's not like the hackers who were spreading this malware in the first place or any other hackers who would want to target him for basically cooperating with the good guys, it's not like they wouldn't have been able to find out his real name and where he lived. Like, if journalists could do it, bad guys could do it too. And is he concerned that they're going to come after him now? So he has said that he's not concerned for his public safety. He just would have preferred to be able to work in peace and quiet and doesn't want the fame. Do you think it would have been any different in the U.S.? I don't think the U.S. press has the same attitude toward this kind of thing. No, I don't think so. And personally, we would not have invested resources into trying to expose this guy's name just for the sake of exposing his name and all the other personal details that came out about him. But as it was, it was pretty clear that it was a well-intentioned 
security researcher who was doing work for the public good, work that he's done before. It didn't seem like part of the story to me to find out who this person was exactly. Where do you draw the line for whether it's okay to pursue someone's identity or not? We do not at the outline have a policy against publishing personal details of a person just because they don't want to be identified. There are some journalistic norms around when you don't publish someone's name. If the person is a minor, we don't typically publish their name. If the person is the victim of a sex crime, those are the big exceptions. Other than that, it's pretty much a case-by-case decision of whether this is in the public interest. And honestly, the privilege of saying you, you don't want your name out there it's not an automatic thing. I think, you know, when we, when we, when I wrote my story, we named the researcher. I'll say his name. His name is Marcus Hitchens. I think that some, some publications didn't name him even after his name was already out there, which I think was very specific to their audiences and felt to me like more of empty posturing than uh, anything that had real impact. For us, the name is already out there. At this point, it would be withholding information from the reader to not put the name in the story. So it just seems like attempting to take a moral stance by saying, we're not going to name this person in the story. And we didn't want to do that. All right. Uh, Adrian, thank you. Thanks, Sam. Culture. TV has become an augmented reality game. Last month, golfer Lexi Thompson was penalized for incorrect ball placement. This in itself was not abnormal, but what was abnormal was that the penalty was assessed and applied because someone watching the game on TV had seen Thompson place the ball wrong the previous day. A viewer contacted the tour, thought they saw something yesterday in the third round, so you're going to watch her put the coin down here for the ball. So obviously it's not in the same spot in play because the coin's down. That's a two-stroke penalty. Now more than ever, television is an interactive experience. With the ability to do your own live commentary during debates, talk to celebrities on social media, and make memes out of last night's Game of Thrones episode, television is basically an extension of the internet. Technically speaking, the term augmented reality applies in most cases to instances where the real world is supplemented with a computer overlay. But according to John Kerry, a communications and media management professor at Fordham University in New York City, it's likely that our definitions of such things will shift sooner rather than later. Well, the, the, the lines are blurring everywhere. What's interactive TV versus a video game? What is interactive TV versus the interactive web. While this is a relatively new development, the expectation that television be interactive isn't new. Carrie points to Winky Dink and You, a 1950s children's cartoon show, as an example of what many people consider to be the first interactive television show. What she was supposed to do is get a special Winky Dink kit, which consisted of a plastic screen that was held on by static to your TV set, and then you had these magic Winky Dink crayons 
Viewers were meant to literally draw on the special screen to complete objects like bridges for Winky Dink to then cross. We want to welcome you back to another half hour of drawing and fun and games on your program, Winky Dink and you. It, it seems kind of silly if you're an adult, but if you were six years old, it actually was pretty magical. That said, the nature of the screen is what did Winky Dink and you in. The show ultimately failed because, you might have suspected it, a lot of kids did not get the Winky Dink plastic screen, and they simply drew on the television set, and their mothers were furious, and the show had demise very quickly. Several other interactive attempts were made over the following decades, like the television system Cube or the series Captain Power and the Soldiers of the Future, but none truly succeeded. Interactive TV was dead completely at the end of the 90s, and, and, and the web won in terms of these interactive things. That isn't to say there haven't been successful examples of audience participation, though it's commonly delayed rather than live. In 2004, the Law & Order Criminal Intent episode Great Barrier had two endings filmed with viewers voting on which one would be the canonical telling. Similarly, an episode of Law & Order Special Victims Unit that aired the same year ended before the verdict with an official online poll determining the outcome. By far the most popular example might be American Idol. The show had viewers vote for their favorite singers throughout its 15-year run, and it was immensely successful, spending several years at the top of the ratings. This is American Idol. Let's go. Interactivity can be very, very lucrative in some cases, but sometimes that interactivity means a golfer loses a tournament they might otherwise have won. Power. It seems like every day the chorus of calls for Donald Trump's impeachment grows louder. Christopher Glazik writes about politics and culture, and he believes that Donald Trump now stands a very good chance of becoming the third president in American history to be impeached. Hey, Chris. How's it going? It's going good. Um, so you wrote about how uh, Comey might not end up being uh, Trump's biggest problem, um, that he may not lead to Trump's impeachment. Sure. Well, I mean, I think Comey is a big problem for Trump and, and may well kind of nudge him past the, you know, the finish line in terms of impeachment. The biggest problem, though, is Trump care, because Trump's only real threat of getting impeached uh, is if the Democrats retake the House in 2018. And passing AHCA, which is the most unpopular piece of legislation in modern history, uh, makes it far more likely than it was before that Democrats could retake the House. So... Do you think that's a pretty sure thing that the Democrats will retake? Uh, no, I don't think it's a sure thing at all. I, th I think for the first time, it seems more likely than not. You know, I mean, there's been a lot of talk, obviously, of, of uh, the Republicans having this kind of gerrymandered uh, advantage in the House. Uh, a lot of analysts say that for Democrats to take the House, they probably have to win the popular vote by like six points, which is, you know, a huge margin. Um, but, you know, polls right now have them doing about that, some polls considerably better. I think there was one poll that had Democrats up like 14 points on the generic ballot. So, you know, if things keep going the way they're going, Democrats are, are you know, pretty certain to uh, beat the Republicans by six or seven or eight points, I think, in, in, in the House elections. And that's in 2018? That's in 2018. So it's a, it's a long time from now. I, I think the thing basically is this. I, I think, you know, since day one, there's been this question hovering over Trump, who's like a pretty wacky guy. Like, is this really going to work out? Like, is this really going to happen? You know, isn't he going to do something to screw it up? And I think so I think that threat's always been there. But I think there's kind of been this sense like, well, yes, but, you know, 
that would require something we don't know now, something kind of currently unforeseen. So is it is it wishful thinking on the Democrats' part uh, to think that there might be an impeachment? Uh, I mean, on the contrary, I think it might be wishful thinking among some Democratic strategists to think that they'll be able to to avoid impeachment. You know, if, if, if they retake the House and if they have the power of these investigative committees, they might be kind of inevitably pushed towards initiating impeachment proceedings, even if they don't think it's a good idea. With the Democrats um, in control of the House, is there is Trump less able to kind of fire his own investigator uh, in a situation like well, that? Well, yeah, absolutely, because because the because you know I mean so there's, there's different kinds of investigations that can take place. The FBI can investigate you. you know, there can be special prosecutors appointed, but House committees can launch their own investigations, and they have subpoena power. The really really important thing I, I you know mentioned in the piece is you know impeachment just means that the House of Representatives charges you essentially with with uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. To actually be removed from office, the Senate then needs to convict you, um, and the Senate trial you know, to, to, for, for the for the Senate to vote to convict requires two thirds of, of the Senate. So that's a really high threshold. It's actually never happened in American history. You know, two presidents have been impeached: Andrew Johnson in the 1860s, and then Bill Clinton in the 1990s, and, and they both survived. Uh, you know, Andrew Johnson just by one vote. But but you know, but the, the Clinton experience is um, revealing, you know, in a number of ways. One way, potentially, is that Clinton got a lot more popular as impeachment proceedings went on. And I think that it was actually the day that the House uh, voted to impeach him, his approval rating reached 70 (laughs) percent. You know, so um, you kind of might ask the question, like, why would a party, uh, why would the Republicans, knowing that Bill Clinton was so popular, plow ahead with impeachment? You know, they they kind of know they're going to shoot themselves in the foot. And, And in fact, they did do quite badly in that midterm in 98. And, you know, the answer is that it just has to do with the distribution of political anger in the population. If you have a big enough group and a rich enough group and a powerful enough group in your party pushing something, it doesn't necessarily matter if it's unpopular overall. So, you know, I think the Democrats could find themselves in a similar position where, you know, the, the public might not want Trump impeached. You know, I, I, we don't know. I mean, the public by that point might, you know, be might be totally over it, but but maybe not. Um, but the question is, would the Democrats in Congress be able to resist activists and donor pressure to impeach? And, and I think that's uh, unlikely. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That concludes The Dispatch. I'm Sam Thonis. Till tomorrow. 